Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 11, Growing Up Neurology. In this episode, we're not going to talk about children at all, but I hope the stories will be just as interesting. One thing that all paediatric neurologists have to do is to spend time working in adult neurology. There are a number of reasons for this, among them the need to understand the type of patients who may present to adult neurologists, but more importantly to aid in ensuring the effective transition and transfer of children with neurological conditions who will require ongoing care in adult life. In the UK, the vast majority of child neurologists begin their training in paediatrics, so the attachment in adult neurology is the first exposure to adult medicine since the pre-registration year. At the time I was in training, the requirement was for a full year immersed in adult neurology. That has changed over the years, and now the time spent is vastly shorter. As a result of this, one year into my senior registrar post, I found myself starting at the Institute of Neurological Sciences at the Southern General Hospital in Glasgow. I didn't really know what to expect. Clearly, by this time I was reasonably experienced in child neurology, but other than from reading, I had little understanding of the types of patients I would come across in the adult world. It felt quite bizarre. Although I was almost as inexperienced in adult neurology as the very junior neurology trainees, I started at the institute as a senior registrar. I was nervous that people would immediately see through me and that I would make a fool of myself. In fact, the team were delighted to have a child neurologist join them. None of them really had any understanding of child neurology, and they were fascinated with the differences between child and adult neurology. I was attached to the professorial unit, This was a team of four consultants, the professor, who was very young, and three fairly senior neurology consultants. I rapidly realised that there was little difference between paediatric and adult neurology in respect of team working. As ever, the most important people were the senior nurses on the ward, and I immediately realised that I would learn more from them, perhaps, than from anyone else. I quickly realised, though, that the type of people admitted onto an adult neurology ward were fundamentally different from the children that I would see as inpatients. There was a mix of people in for investigation, people presenting with bizarre neurological symptoms, people admitted with acute neurological disorders, and people who had been seen in the special interest clinics of each of the consultants. Each of the consultants had their own specific areas of interest and expertise, and, as a result, the ward runs with the consultants differed dramatically. The one thing that was the same was that each consultant took responsibility for acute admissions on a rotating basis. In reality, the admission was seen and managed by the trainees, but the consultant ward round was always fascinating because of the particular spin that individual consultants would bring to the discussion. One of the consultants was a true old-fashioned clinical neurologist. He was extremely senior extremely experienced and superbly talented in his neurological assessment. I can always remember as a medical student that the joke was that a neurology consultant would assess the plantar response by stroking the foot with the key of their Bentley. 
The plantar response is a response which occurs when a firm object, such as a key or a tip of a tendon hammer, is stroked along the outer border of the sole of the foot and across the forefoot. The normal response is for the big toe to flex or bend down, and an extension or upward movement of the toe is an indicator of an underlying problem with motor pathways. I always expected the senior consultant in Glasgow to bring out the key of his Bentley, although he never did. In fact, I think he drove a Vauxhall. Nevertheless, his clinical expertise and the challenge he brought in thinking through the significance of neurological signs was invaluable, and I learned an enormous amount from him. I also learned much about how not to do it from some of the other consultants. I remember a young man of around 33 years of age who was admitted to the ward acutely one afternoon. The story was that he had been completely well previously and had then, over a matter of several days, gone off his feet. By the time he was admitted to the ward, he was completely unable to walk, and he described complete inability to move his legs. Despite this inability to walk or indeed move his legs, he had not lost any control of his bladder or bowels, and the formal neurological examination was completely normal. When asked to move, he could not indeed move his legs, but when distracted or asked to use his arms, movement could be observed. It was obvious that the inability to move did not originate in any structural or lower-level neurological impairment, but rather arose from the higher centres of the brain, and was psychologically mediated. Nowadays we would talk of functional neurological disorder, but in those days the terminology was much more pejorative, and this was described as a hysterical gait disorder. Sadly, the consultant responsible for this young man's care took the view that the approach that was required was to shame the young man and to challenge his inability to move. It was immediately obvious to me that this was counterproductive and only dramatically increased the psychological trauma the young man was experiencing and which was likely playing an important part in his inability to move. After the ward round, the senior nurse and I spent much time with the young man and tried to explain to him what was going on. We advised him that the absence of any serious underlying neurological disorder was a good thing and that we had every expectation that he could and would improve. We asked the physiotherapists to see him, and within a few days he had recovered, at least from a neurological perspective. In those days, I don't think we fully appreciated the importance of providing formal psychological support, but I always remember how traumatised I was by the approach taken, and I swore never to take that approach myself in the future. At that time, I had not seen functional neurological disorder in children, although I have seen it much since then. It's an important condition for a neurologist to recognise, as a positive diagnosis made with confidence and in a supportive manner is hugely important in determining outcome. So what is a functional neurological disorder? The term functional neurological disorder is used to describe a neurological condition in which there are abnormalities of the voluntary motor and sensory systems presenting with genuine neurological symptoms, but where those symptoms are internally inconsistent or where they do not align with recognised nervous system pathology. Certain neurological symptoms are particularly likely in this condition, including paralysis, 
abnormal movements such as tremor, sensory loss, particularly visual loss, abnormalities of speech, or seizures. In the past, many other terms have been used to describe the disorder, including hysterical, non-organic, psychogenic, and medically unexplained. More recently, it has been recognised that this is a condition which should be positively diagnosed and should not be seen simply as an absence of a defined or recognised organic disease. Functional Neurological Disorder, or FND, is often associated with persistent symptoms such as pain, fatigue and dizziness, and often coexists with non-neurological functional disorders, such as irritable bowel syndrome or fibromyalgia. There has been a significant increase in understanding of this condition in recent years. In the past, FND was always considered to be the consequence of an adverse life event, such as a previous childhood trauma or recent severe stress. More recently, it has been recognised that the situation is far more complex. It is recognised that there are often predisposing factors. The presence of other functional disorders such as, as previously discussed, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, etc. may be important. Many people have pre-existing neurological conditions such as migraine, and they may well have been stressful life events or childhood trauma but these are not present in all people with functional neurological disorder. It is well recognised that there is often a triggering event, and this may include such diverse problems as a recent injury, a panic attack, or occurrence of another neurological disorder which seem to set off the functional process. Many people with FND will have psychological comorbidities, but once again these are not invariable. Problems such as previous depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, sleep disorders, dissociative illnesses and so on are well recognised. What is also really important is that there are frequently perpetuating factors and these include the feeling of not being believed, a feeling that doctors don't really know what's going on, a positive misdiagnosis of another disorder and the occurrence of unnecessary interventions including unnecessary surgery. Increasing evidence points to the fact that the role of the brain as a predictive organ is extremely important in understanding functional neurological disorders. This is best illustrated when one considers the issue of phantom limb pain. It is well known that people who have had an amputation of a limb may continue to experience symptoms arising from the amputated limb, including pain, discomfort or abnormal sensation. One can understand the occurrence of phantom limb pain by recognising the fact that the brain is predicting that the limb is still there and is ignoring the sensory and neurological feedback which indicates that the limb is no longer present. Thus, effectively, the brain overrides normal and appropriate neurological feedback. It's only a short step from this to understand that functional neurological disorders can occur when the brain predicts an abnormal function, even in the presence of normal neurological feedback. Thus, for example, an individual may have two legs, both of which have normal neurological connections. However, in the context of an FND, the brain predicts that the legs will not work, and this abnormal prediction interferes with the normal function of the limbs. Effectively, therefore, the brain is prioritising its prediction and expectation over the actual neurological function. Further evidence of abnormal neurological control comes from functional imaging studies. 
by looking at blood flow in the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging, it's possible to determine where in the brain a specific activity is located, when this particular activity is occurring. There is some evidence from people with FND that important areas of the brain involved with what is known as agency are functioning in an abnormal way. Agency is the term given to the sense that we have that we are responsible for a movement. If this part of the brain is not functioning normally, then we may not have the sense that we are in control of a movement, or indeed a lack of movement. These findings explain why functional neurological disorders can occur in people without any pre-existing adverse events, and also why functional neurological disorders may follow what would appear to be a relatively minor physical trauma, or a more significant neurological experience, such as panic attacks. No longer do we think that functional neurological disorders are purely a disorder of the mind, but we now recognise that these are important disorders in which there is a complex interaction between mind and brain. This understanding is really important in the treatment of the disorder. Treatment of functional neurological disorder starts with a clear and unbiased explanation of the disorder by a doctor who understands how the brain works. This effectively means that this should be a neurologist, or a paediatric neurologist if the patient is a child. How this explanation is given is as important as the explanation itself. It's crucial that the patient has a sense that they are believed, and that the doctor seeing them has a clear understanding of what is going on. The next step is effectively a rehabilitative approach, with involvement of appropriate therapists, including physiotherapy and occupational therapy. There is a definite need for psychological therapy, and any identified psychological or medical comorbidities must also be treated. Traditionally, the outcome of FND has been considered to be relatively poor, but evidence from services which are designed to diagnose and treat FND indicate that the outlook is really dependent on effective diagnosis and provision of appropriate treatment. I have learned much about functional neurological disorder since I first met that young man in the adult neurology world. In children, the outlook is often better than in adults, but I am absolutely certain that the initial diagnosis-giving appointment is crucial. If this is done well, then the individual and their family are much more likely to engage with the therapeutic interventions offered, and the outcome is significantly improved. In my experience, one of the key messages to get across is that this is a real disorder, that the problem is not all in the mind, but that there is a really important interaction between mind and body which is medically and biologically understandable, and which needs treatment as the affected person can't solve the problem on their own. Another patient who caused me considerable amount of anxiety was a lady who was admitted to the antenatal ward with severe headache. She was in the late stages of pregnancy and had been completely well right up to the day of admission. On the day of admission, she had an explosive onset of an extremely severe headache with vomiting. On admission, she was found to have a very stiff neck and the immediate concern was that she may have had a condition known as subarachnoid hemorrhage. 
Because the pregnancy was quite advanced, and because the diagnosis was potentially serious, she underwent an emergency CT scan. CT, or computed tomography, is a method of imaging the brain using X-ray. Normally, X-ray is contraindicated in pregnancy, but in this situation, the benefits clearly outweighed the disadvantages. The CT scan did indeed show evidence of blood in the subarachnoid space, consistent with the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Normally, the next step would be to investigate, to find the cause of the hemorrhage, and to plan treatment. But in the situation of advanced pregnancy, this would not be immediately appropriate. Shortly after I saw this lady, she went into labour. My concern was whether it was appropriate to allow her to continue with labour, or whether we should recommend that the baby be delivered by caesarean section. As a paediatric trainee, I felt that I needed support from my adult neurology consultant in making this recommendation. After a number of fairly frantic telephone calls, labour doesn't wait for anybody, my consultant agreed that the safest option for both mum and baby was for delivery to take place by caesarean section. We spoke to the obstetric consultant, and this went ahead later in the afternoon. The baby was well, and following delivery, his mum underwent further investigation, which demonstrated a small weakening of the wall of one of the arteries in the brain, known as an aneurysm. This was subsequently treated, and she made an uneventful recovery. I thought it would be useful to tell you a little bit about subarachnoid hemorrhage. You may remember that in episode 4 we discussed the membranes surrounding the brain. We discussed how cerebrospinal fluid circulates in the space between the arachnoid mater and the pia mater, the so-called subarachnoid space. It is this same space in which subarachnoid hemorrhage occurs. Subarachnoid hemorrhage usually arises when there is a rupture of a blood vessel to the brain. The most common cause of this is when there is an aneurysm or weakening of the wall of a blood vessel. These areas of weakening often occur close to where blood vessels branch. The weakening of the vessel wall leads to bulging of the blood vessel at the weak point, and it is this bulge that is known as an aneurysm. Aneurysm can occur in any blood vessel in the body, but when they occur in vessels supplying the brain, they are known as cerebral aneurysms. There are a number of risk factors for cerebral aneurysm, including smoking, high blood pressure, a family history of cerebral aneurysm, and having a genetic form of a condition known as polycystic kidney disease. It is also recognised that subarachnoid hemorrhage is more common in pregnant women, probably because of the effects of hormonal changes of pregnancy on vessel walls. Most cerebral aneurysms never rupture, and never cause subarachnoid hemorrhage. However, larger aneurysms, those bigger than 7mm, and those which occur on larger arteries are more likely to rupture. It's not known how many people in the population have a cerebral aneurysm, although they become more common as you get older, and are extremely rare in childhood. It's thought that around 1 in 100 people in the general population will have a cerebral aneurysm, although the risk of subarachnoid hemorrhage is much smaller than that, with about 1 in 12,500 presenting in the UK each year. Aneurysms are usually detected because of subarachnoid hemorrhage. However, very occasionally larger aneurysms can cause symptoms because they press on structures within the brain. 
In this situation, a person may develop visual disturbance, such as double vision, speech problems, weakness of one side of the face, or very severe headaches. These symptoms more often occur as a result of other causes, and aneurysm is an uncommon reason for these symptoms. Unfortunately, bleeding from an aneurysm is a very serious problem, and a significant proportion of people who have a subarachnoid hemorrhage will die or have permanent neurological problems such as epilepsy, loss of function of a limb or limbs, persistent headache, sleep, and emotional problems. Fortunately, over time, many of these symptoms will improve and may disappear. Because of the risk of bleeding, larger aneurysms or smaller aneurysms with other risk factors discovered incidentally may be treated in a planned way. The treatment involves either a neurosurgical procedure in which a clip is placed onto the aneurysm or, more commonly, a procedure undertaken by a neuroradiologist in which a small catheter is fed up the major artery in the thigh, through the heart and into the cerebral blood vessels. Then a small coil is placed into the aneurysm. These procedures carry a small risk of causing a stroke, so are only offered if there is a high risk of the aneurysm rupturing. However, if the aneurysm has already bled, then treatment would usually be offered. On occasion, though, the actual bleed from the aneurysm will destroy the aneurysm, and further treatment is unnecessary. I learned a great deal from my time in adult neurology. Some of the conditions which were common in adult neurology are seen, but much less frequently in pediatric neurology. It was really helpful to see how people with diseases such as multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease were looked after. Although I would probably only see a handful of children with these problems throughout my career, the exposure during my neurology placement was invaluable. One of the people I met very early on in my neurology placement was a 21-year-old man who'd been found unconscious in the street in Glasgow one morning. It turned out that he'd been drinking and a few hours before he was found had taken a single tablet of LSD. When he was admitted he was unconscious, although he would flex his arms to pain. Strikingly though, he was generally extremely stiff and it was almost impossible to move his arms or legs because of this rigidity. By the following day, his conscious level had improved somewhat, although it did fluctuate over the next few days. Despite the improvements in his conscious level, he remained extremely stiff, and his movements were all extremely slow. He had a slight temperature, but the remainder of his clinical examination was fairly unremarkable. He underwent a lot of tests, and the only abnormality we found was that a chemical released from muscles when they're damaged was extremely high in his bloodstream. As he improved, he did complain intermittently of visual hallucinations, and his speech was slurred. Over about a week he gradually recovered, and by ten days after his admission he was completely back to his normal self. We tested for any other drugs that he might have taken, but the only positive finding was the presence of LSD in his blood. We made the diagnosis of a condition known as neuroleptic malignant syndrome. 
Although this disorder is well recognized in people taking antipsychotic medication, this had never previously been seen in someone taking LSD. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is a potentially life-threatening condition, which is usually a reaction to certain prescription drugs, predominantly drugs used to treat psychosis, which is a severe psychiatric disorder. These drugs all act against dopamine pathways within the brain. The same disorder can also be seen when drugs acting positively on dopamine pathways are abruptly withdrawn. The typical features of neuroleptic malignant syndrome are muscle rigidity, altered conscious level, fever, and alterations of heart rate and blood pressure. The severe muscle rigidity leads to breakdown of muscle fibers with release of muscle protein into the bloodstream. If this is very severe, then it can clog the kidneys, leading to kidney failure. Typically, the condition starts within a few hours or days of treatment with an offending medication, and recognition of the condition is extremely important as a critical element of management of the disorder involves stopping the causative drug and providing supportive treatment until the patient gets better. Fortunately, the newer drugs used to treat psychosis are much less likely to cause neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and it is far less commonly seen nowadays, occurring in only about 0.01% of people taking antipsychotic medication. Although almost all cases of neuroleptic malignant syndrome follow treatment either with antipsychotic medication or as a result of abrupt withdrawal of a dopa-active drug, there are a number of medications which do not act on the dopamine pathway that have been associated with the condition. In this young man, the only drug which he had taken, other than alcohol, was LSD. LSD doesn't act on dopamine pathways, but acts on a different chemical system in the brain known as the serotonin pathway. It's still unclear why this caused such a dramatic reaction in our patient, but fortunately from him, he made a full recovery. Since then, I've come across a very small number of children treated with dopamine antagonists who have had the same condition, and I always think back to the young man I met in Glasgow. Although I learned a great deal from my time in adult neurology and made many good friends, and indeed met my wife-to-be, I was certainly ready to return to paediatrics by the end of the year. I look forward to my return to paediatric neurology and to continuing my education. In the next episode, we will review my final year at York Hill. Of course, I didn't realise at the time that it was to be my final year there. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope that you'll join me for the next episode. In the meantime, if you want to go to my website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, please feel free to do so. And if you'd like to leave a review, please go to your podcast provider and leave a review there if possible. Many thanks for your listening. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I will be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.